I always want to remind them, you signed those treaties. And if you don't want to attract foreign investors, fine, fine. But then don't sign the treaties. And, mm -hmm. and then, then we'll tell investors, you know, when you go to Pakistan, you'll have these legal teams representing them. The arbitration will take 10 years. You cannot enforce against them. So then the cost of investment for that country is just going to be a lot more expensive. Hello and welcome to Pakistanomy. In this episode, I spoke with Marika Paulson about international arbitration, the Rico Dick case, and what Pakistan needs to do to settle this dispute and attract foreign investment. Marika is Vice President at Global Legal Institute for Peace and Conflict Resolution and is one of the foremost experts in the world of international arbitration. Thank you for tuning in and hope you enjoy this discussion. So Marika, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I want to start off with uh, just the first question, which uh, sets the baseline for our uh, discussion and deep dive into Rico Dick and what happened with Pakistan. Um, is what is the purpose of the international arbitration system and how was it set up and what's the intended goals that is set out to achieve? So I, I have to be entirely honest that the original purpose of international arbitration um, might have changed over time. So uh, a long, long time ago, we had something that is called gunboat diplomacy. Whenever there are disputes involving states, uh, they would use force, which is something that all of us want to avoid. So from there, there is one alternative for investors when they have problems with governments, which is to go to local courts. So imagine you are an investor having uh, interests in Pakistan you have contracts with the government and you have some issues, you would go to the Pakistani courts. Now, there are quite a few countries um, where this is not an option for foreign investors. So what did the international arena come up with? It is alternative dispute uh, settlement methods that do not involve local courts. And this is called international arbitration. So in the investor state uh, arena, we have bilateral investment treaties. To date, we have around 3,000. And this shows how, in principle, the, uh, the idea of arbitration uh, to use that to solve disputes between investors and states is a good one, right? National courts are not involved. It's a neutral platform. There's due process. And there's fairness. Um, and so the last 20 or 30 years, this has worked very well. But I would say more recently, both on the state side and the investor side, there has been a lot of criticism on how the arbitrators are being appointed, the length of the procedures and the cost of procedures. So we are again at a paradigm shift where we need to look forward and, and find some changes to, um, to save arbitration as a method for disputes between investors and states. So we've seen in, in the case of Pakistan, several cases that have emerged, uh, Rikotik being the largest one, which is the mm -hmm. copper and gold mines in the province of Balochistan. Recently, the award finally came out about $5.8, $5.9 billion. Still, uh, Pakistan is appealing the verdict and it's still ongoing. And so we saw uh, from an outside observer, what did you make of that case? It started back in, let me see, um, it, the, the Bilateral Investment Treaty was signed in February 98. The award was finally made in nine, July 2019. And actually the request for arbitration was made in, in November 2011. So it took about eight years and plus 
for this case and long drawn out saga. And we've talked about this when we were working together about this case at length. And so was curious to hear your thoughts um, in terms of how you saw this case play out and uh, what are some of the interesting things that, that came that, that you saw and, you know, were like, this is interesting. So very important, although I have worked at several law firms in both Europe and, and U.S. and have, have acted as counsel in arbitrations, both commercial investment, I've, I've worked for arbitrators, I'm a professor, this is my personal opinion. Um, this arbitration does not make us look good. That's the bottom line. And, and this is what we refer to as the PR crisis in international arbitration. So I am inside of this international arbitration community. But if I explain to outsiders that an investor relies on a treaty to resolve a dispute with the state because courts are either not independent or it takes forever, they have a, a, a backlog of millions of cases and, and arbitration was supposed to be efficient, right? Um, this is not efficient. If something starts in 2011 and the award still has not been enforced, we can say, a decade-long arbitration, not, not really uh, efficient dispute um, settlement. So a couple of things I, I want to say there for both the investor and the state for Pakistan. Pakistan, I think you and I would both agree, they want to attract foreign direct investment. There recently was a settlement um, with Turkey that also related to dispute and arbitration, and both countries came together and, and settled. They had negotiation teams and they settled, and, and Pakistan has made the statements, we want to attract foreign investors. Now, what do states do? They sign these bilateral investment treaties. The states do this, not the investors. And they do it to say to investors, if you come here and you have a problem, we have a neutral forum. So you have the mine, you have the, the, the dispute between the investor and the government, they first went to the local courts in Pakistan, which we refer to as like local remedies. And um, I, I will leave it up to the, the experts on, on the ground. I am not a Pakistani lawyer, but one could argue that, that what the Supreme Court did um, could constitute a denial of justice. Um, that decision did not make the investor happy. They pursued an investment arbitration claim on the basis of a bilateral investment treaty. And then what happened? Um, Pakistan hired a law firm to represent them in this case. And I want to say one thing for governments. When you find yourself as a respondent in an arbitration case against an investor, get top lawyers and do the right thing. You signed that treaty. You committed to accountability you agreed that the investor would not have to go to your local course, the investor could go to an international tribunal. You hire lawyers that defend your position, that guarantee due process, but don't hire a team that subsequently engages in what we call guerrilla tactics. So what happened in this arbitration is the team for Pakistan challenged everything. They challenged the accounting method, then they challenged one arbitrator. When that didn't work, they, cha they challenged the entire arbitral tribunal, which I've never seen in, the, in, in mm. international arbitration. We've never seen the legal team for a state respondent challenge the entire tribunal. Um, and this is one of the reasons why this arbitration took forever. 
Now, what would you think this helps? Does, does this help a state? No, it does not. Because the tribunal gets irritated and the institution gets irritated. So the only thing you achieve is that if anything, the tribunal will be biased against the state. So finally, the award is rendered, as you know, uh, took forever. And then what you get is, which is hard for outsiders to understand, you have a dispute that has been adjudicated. It has taken a long time. That is not due process, but this decision is binding. And on the basis of two treaties, that award should be enforceable and the winning party could execute. However, in the real world, you need to find assets that belong to that state. And ideally those assets should be somewhere else so you can seize them and you can execute them. And this is where we are now. So it's not over yet. And so if you don't have any assets, assets outside, as we say in Dutch, you can't pluck feathers from a bold chicken. <laughs> um, so this, what do you get? You get two things. Parties stop trusting international arbitration as an efficient, reliable processes for disputes, for resolving disputes between investors and states, but also foreign investors will distrust going to Pakistan. So if I would talk to a new investor and that investor would say, you know what, I, I have an interest in investing there. Um, you can't go to the local courts and to say, well, there are bilateral investment treaties and you can invoke them. Well, now we know that could take a decade and you would still have nothing. Um, so what this dispute shows us is a couple of things. One is how the government behaved in that procedure and the lawyers they hired and the guerrilla tactics and just trying to postpone, postpone, postpone. And second, that somehow arbitration wasn't designed such that it can stop these uh, dilatory tactics. So we, we need to improve the system, but I also think we need to look into alternative methods. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting. I, I think the FDI point is really important for a country like Pakistan. Um, and you said you're not the Pakistan expert, but I, I can talk about that a bit is that the Supreme Court, when it struck down that, that deal on the Rico-Dick mine, um, actually Pakistan Supreme Court has had a history of judicial intervention. Um, and there are several deals where they have intervened in the affairs of the executive and struck down on the business side deals such as the Pakistan Steel Mills privatization um, in the recent past. Um, and so this continues to this day where uh, the interventionism in the executive affairs, uh, even coronavirus, for example, a couple of weeks mm -hmm. ago, um, the Supreme Court Chief Justice said that the health minister of the federal government should be fired because they're not doing their job. And mm -hmm. it's, not the, it's not the court's job to decide whether the executive is doing his job or not, but that interventionism continues. So it is a problem. Um, but one thing that stood out to me, in addition, uh, when I observed this case was that not only Pakistan hired counsel that was engaging in delaying tactics and irritating the tribunal, as you said, but that the teams kept getting reshuffled and changed on the lawyer side. They hired several law firms. Is that something that's normal in your experience that you've seen? Or again, is that something that was unique to this case? This was a very unusual case. Well, I don't think that the, the dispute or the BIT is, but I must say as a, um, an arbitration specialist, replacing teams so often and we had first somebody in London then it was a very very big international law firm and then a firm 
I think with offices in Washington and um, Miami, and then you wonder, how did this happen? What did the first law firm or barrister do wrong? My advice to governments is you've signed on to these treaties. You committed to accountability. Um, if you have expropriated or your courts have engaged in behavior that leads to denial of justice, hire the best team from the get-go immediately. Hire those who are ethical, who are the top, who have the experience, don't hire those who try to be clever or um, tricky or original. There is, this system has been in place for a long time and the good lawyers know how this works. So you, you hire a top team. Um, the investor in this case had hired one of the leading uh, public international law firms in the world with a super stellar team. And, and this is what you need to do. And they didn't change their team, right? Just to set the record straight. They had the same team they, throughout. Exactly. They never changed their team. So, so I think this is a mistake. And one thing, um, what you see sometimes a, a law practice is that some lawyers would, would take on a case on contingency. So they'll say, well, we'll take this for you. You don't have to pay us um, uh, until you win. And then we want a percentage. Don't do that. It, lawyers who take on contingency, I would, I would be very uh, suspicious of that. Um, I, I think you just need to accept as a state respondent that you have to pay the hourly fees. But if you have the right lawyers, they will not overcharge. They will be efficient. And, and you tell them, as a government, we are a state respondent. We want to make sure that this procedure happens in an efficient way, that due process is complied with. And you have to face the music in a way. Otherwise, don't sign any bilateral investment treaties. Just don't do it. If, if you don't yeah. want to attract, right? If you don't want to attract foreign direct investment, that's fine. But you commit to accountability. Another thing that I would say to, so this is, that was very unusual in this case. Another thing that was unusual that they, they, they challenged one arbitrator and then all of them. So that, that I've never mm -hmm. seen. Um, so no, it makes all of us look bad. It makes all of us look bad. And, and one thing that's important for, I think, both investors and states, don't just hire lawyers. And I say this, I am a lawyer. Um, <laughs> but I think in terms of popularity, we get close to, you know, the dentists. So if you, if you don't need us, just stay away from us. <laughs> so what I would do is both government and investor, if there's even like the inkling of a dispute or friction, try to settle. Mm -hmm. Get get a mediator, uh, somebody, a diplomat, an honest broker, a, a neutral party that is trusted by both and try to settle before you go to arbitration. Um, a lot of bilateral investment treaties that provide for arbitration administered by ICSID in Washington, they have a cooling off period. So how the arbitration starts in the treaty is that you have three to six months of a cooling off period during which both parties need to try to settle. This is never used. Use it. Get an honest broker. And, and, and this is what they did with the situation with Turkey. Mm -hmm. um, now, why? Because I think both for investors and states, arbitration is not a strategy. It doesn't look at all the aspects. It, it takes a long time. It is very expensive. Um, you end the relationship between investor and state. And one thing I know from investors is many of them will say, I want to be the good citizen. I want to keep my investments 
there, right? Um, so try, try to settle, use other methods. That yeah. will be my advice. And I think Turkey was interesting also because it, there's a special relationship Pakistan has with Turkey and both the leadership there got involved and, and broke this deal through and it finally uh, was settled. So it, it's again a, a model that can be replicated through diplomacy, through uh, sovereign engagement on both sides. Um, in this case, it would be, um, I'm guessing Barak is Canadian, so it would be Pakistan, Canada and Chile. Um, the one couple of questions before we jump into alternative dispute resolution, how would that go and your advice on that? Um, just for the, you mentioned that it was unusual to challenge all the arbitrators and for the person who does not know how arbitrators are, are appointed, can you just elaborate on why this is unusual? Because from my understanding, the arbitrators, correct me if I'm wrong, if I've read it incorrectly, but everyone comes together to agree on arbitrators, right? So it's not like someone imposes arbitrators on you, which is why it was unusual or was there something else here? Well, so this is a bit where right now the shoe pinches um, in reforms discussions. So arbitration has one key component that is called party autonomy or the autonomy of the will. So most um, treaties, arbitral rules, arbitral institutions, provide for what we call party appointed arbitrators. So what happens most of the time, I would say, is the claimant, the investor, appoints the one party appointed arbitrator, the state respondent appoints one party appointed arbitrator, and the two of them appoint the president of the tribunal. So sometimes what you have is a list procedure, so parties can submit a couple of names, um, and then the institution chooses. What you often have is the other side appoints somebody and then, you know, the other one challenges it. So the reason why this is a good system is it, it contributes to fairness because judges are often state appointed. So that would create an unfair balance vis-a-vis -vis the investors. And what you have here, both parties get to choose one and those two pick the chair. And once they are a tribunal, they are one tribunal. This is my position. Never say as a party, that's my arbitrator. My, you have, yeah. right, you have your lawyers, but that arbitrator is member of the tribunal. What you then see is that often in the procedure, a party starts to, could challenge the arbitrator appointed by the other side or even the chair. But this is where we lawyers need to be careful. Um, many of these arbitrators are very experienced. Um, there, is, there are lots of conflicts of interest rules by many institutions that force arbitrators to disclose any conflicts. You can do arbitrator interviews. So this is a fairly solid system, I would say. And so you only challenge when you really have grounds to believe that this arbitrator has a conflict of interest. What we now see is just for dilatory, dilatory tactics, you just challenge the arbitrator. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this is really often steered by the lawyers and, and we have to be more ethical. And I think in this case to, to challenge three, I will not be persuaded that all three of them had a conflict yeah. of interest, right? Moreover, these were very uh, experienced known arbitrators. So that's just mm -hmm. abuse of the system. Yeah. And, and one more question on, you know, in terms of, awards being made and then enforced. It's obviously a very long process. And in, in experience, I've read some stories about 
orders being given to impound ships and planes and things like that. So what happens in that period where the award has to be enforced and a sovereign, let's say it's Pakistan, which in Pakistan's case, there is not a lot of assets to be, to be captured internationally. But in the case there are, and you find some, uh, what begins to happen between the investor and the state when the enforcement period start kicks in? Well, so as a young lawyer, this was the fun stuff, I have to say, um, seizing ships and planes and, and how to do that and how to find them. And, and it's, it's very interesting um, and, and sort of TV stuff. But um, there are a couple of problems here. So when you are a claimant and you know that you're in the middle of the arbitration, you're going to get an award, my advice is immediately find out where the assets are and try to secure them. If you wait until the award is rendered, what do you think the state respondent is going to do? They might move those assets around. So my advice would always be, and especially for example in the Netherlands, very easy to seize assets. So do that from the get-go. Um, so this is another sad part of international arbitration. The original idea was once you have an award, you can get your money. Um, there, so if it's exit arbitration, so bilateral investment treaties that provide for exit, exit has an automatic enforcement regime. When it's um, unsuitable arbitration with the permanent court of arbitration administering the arbitration, you the New York Convention will apply. So you have two treaties that help the enforcement. Um, one would think, right? Now, the exit convention, although it's an almost automatic enforcement, the respondent state can still fight that enforcement and execution by using foreign sovereign immunities laws, wherever those assets are. So, for example, with the ship, um, we had to do this a lot in the Netherlands with, with certain countries. Um, can you seize a ship if it's a warship? Hmm. No, because those are um, assets that are used for government, acta de jure gestionis, as we call them in Dutch Latin. So you can only seize assets that are for commercial use. Now, that sounds simple, but in the legal world, we can fight on this endlessly. So for lawyers, it's fun, but for the claimant, it's a nightmare. Um, now, the New York Convention is one of the most successful treaties in the history of international law and trade. Uh, it's 60 years old and has 160 contracting states. Kofi Annan uh, applauded this treaty as contributing worldwide to the rule of law. It happens to be my um, area of, of expertise and focus. And I thought it was great until I studied about 2000 decisions. And here's the issue with the New York Convention. It's, the New York Convention is supposed to um, create a very swift, easy enforcement processes. So basically, you take your award, you go to any court of a country where you have assets, and it's like a stamp process, right? Um, However, there are ways in this treaty that states can fight the enforcement. So they can say, oh, public policy or, you know, the, the um, arbitrators violated due process. And there are five grounds. And so what we see now is that you have to go to court with your award, one piece of paper, and then you have to get another piece of paper, which is the enforcement judgment. And that now turns into a whole new second battle. So what we talk about is like a theater play where you have two acts. Act one is the arbitration and act two is the enforcement. And we have now cases where the enforcement phase is a decade. So something is, I think the, the lawyers have become too clever 
and have found ways to play with all these legal instruments that were supposed to help investors and states. And meanwhile, the investor and the states are paying nice lawyers fees, right? <laughs> so as long as you're not on contingency, it's, it's a nice hourly bill coming through, right? So that's, again, yes. the, the incentive structure is a bit skewed, in my opinion, over there as well. It is. Yes, you're, you're entirely right. And I think we all need to face the, the music and um, sit together with all the stakeholders. Uh, one thing, there, there are reforms underway to address the criticism. Um, hopefully all stakeholders, states, investors, experts sit together to address the criticisms in an honest way. And what my advice would be, yes, we need to make changes, but those changes need to play, take place in the current system. So we, we still need to have the permanent court of arbitration in The Hague. We still need to rely on ICSID in Washington. Um, don't throw out something that, that is so solid for such a long time. But work with the stakeholders to, to find ways to hold arbitrators accountable, to hold legal teams accountable, but also the state respondents. Because I always want to remind them, you signed those treaties. And if you don't want to attract foreign investors, fine, fine. But then don't sign the treaties and, mm -hmm. and then, then we'll tell investors, you know, when you go to Pakistan, you'll have these legal teams representing them. The arbitration will take 10 years. You cannot enforce against them. So then the cost of investment for that country is just going to be a lot more expensive. Yeah, I, I did a podcast on the power sector and, you know, there's been a lot of criticism in recent weeks in Pakistan around um, the power sector and the guaranteed rate of returns and high IRRs. And I had an expert come in and he was saying the same thing. The sovereign risk in Pakistan is really high. So any investor, if they're getting 10% return equity in the United States, they're not going to settle for anything less than 15, 20% return on equity in a country like Pakistan, because they know, particularly in large investments like power, that there mm -hmm. will be a dispute, money won't be paid. There's a risk of going into arbitration or court battles, et cetera. And so he, his case was the same, that if you have high sovereign risk, what are you going to do? It's, an, it's a free market. It, capital moves around the world. And if you want to have a lower rate of uh, equity, return on equity, then you have to be known as a better jurisdiction for doing business. And as long as you're viewed as being risky, then it's not going to work. Um, in the case of this TCC issue, it's a decade for Act 1, Act 2 is only just beginning. So let's say another decade. So clearly it's not going to work for the time being. So, and we've talked about when we were working together on alternate dispute resolution mechanisms. So just wanted to hear from you in terms of what is that like and what are some of the keys to success when you're exploring uh, res resolving these disputes outside of the arbitration system, which clearly takes a long time. Yeah. So, um, Sometimes what investors do, I call it the, the stick and carrot. So sometimes you do need to put that arbitration in place to show the government that this is serious and to show the government, if you don't want to talk to us, we will proceed with this arbitration and it's going to cost you a lot of money and we will collect either way. Um, what you can do is you can start the arbitration and then just suspend the proceedings, right? Um, and then there are a couple of things. I mean, in some countries, apparently that is not enough. You need a judgment. You need something real stick. In other countries, um, local experts will say you need a media strategy. I believe that it's better to keep things confidential. So don't, don't engage. I, I am also 
a big opponent of trial by media, especially after a decade in the United States. Um, so what I would advise is this, find an honest broker because you can't negotiate for yourself. So what we've seen with a bunch of investors, they will say, well, I have my connections and I know an ambassador and I know somebody at the government and I can talk to them. No, because you're talking about your own interests and to a certain extent, they conflict with the interests of the government. So you need to create some air between the two parties. So what I would do, I would like to be able to talk to investors um, after the legal team comes in, which sounds odd because I'm a, a, a lawyer myself, but talk to the investor before the, the counsel in the arbitration comes in, get an honest broker, talk to that broker and set out what you want. So one thing that is interesting is in arbitration, everybody automatically expects investors just want millions, sometimes billions, right? And then just walk away. No, a lot of investors will say, I have about five, six issues here in this country. Um, some of them I can go to local court. Some of them is tax. Some of them I can go to arbitration, but they want to actually address it not in silos, but holistically, right? And so either court or arbitration is not the option. So talk to the honest broker, put all your issues on the table, think about which issues you're willing to walk away from, think about which issues are really crucial to you and see if they can be negotiated. And then get the government at the table and have the honest broker, whether this is a diplomat or a certified mediator or even an arbitrator who acts as conciliator at the table and start those conversations as early as possible behind closed doors. And um, then what you can do if you want to make sure that that agreement, if you will, is binding, if it's a mediation agreement, you can now enforce it under the Singapore Convention for the Enforcement of Mediation Decisions that has been recently concluded. If you're not comfortable with that, um, because not 160 states have signed on to that treaty, you can add that decision to an award, it's just the format, and then you can enforce it under the New York Convention. So I would say for investors, get an honest broker, keep it confidential, and find a way to, through your honest broker or the, the legal team of the government, to make the government understand the following. They want to be seen as foreign investor friendly. They signed on to the BIT. There will be an arbitration no matter what, which is going to cost them and it will come with bad publicity and it will take forever, which means that they will be in this proceeding for 10 years and then the enforcement stage, it will cost them money. It will take time in terms of management. So arbitration is just bad news. And, and that way you could tell the government, just try to settle. And if anything, you know, we can both always go to arbitration. That's interesting. So, you know, in, in some cases, if you look at the Karki or the Turkey-Pakistan deal that happened, that essentially what they did right, was under behind closed doors. It, there mm -hmm. was not a lot of news coverage around it until one day the news came out that there was a settlement done and the Turkish leadership was tanked by the Pakistani leadership and the matter was closed. So in a way, that also then prevents claims about corruption and things like that. But I think it's very important then to have a credible, honest broker because I'm thinking about a place like Pakistan and a big case like Rico Dick, 
where there are billions on the line, opposition parties, those who have an interest on the other side, etc., may point the finger and say, well, there's something shady going on behind closed doors. Um, and therefore, having a team or maybe an honest broker that is credible who, if there are leaks and allegations, can stand up to mm-hmm. scrutiny is very important because you want to make sure that when the deal is negotiated and being executed after it's been mediated, that the credibility of people is not called into question, even even when there are other motives involved, uh, and which happens a lot in Pakistan. So I want to turn this over now from the investor side to the flip mm-hmm. side, which is sometimes I ask my guests is, you know, imagine you're the advisor um, to the prime minister, to Prime Minister Khan. You're not a Pakistan expert, we know that, but you are an arbitration and mediation expert. And the prime minister is asking you on advice on what to do with this Rico Dick case, given that the award has come out. What would your advice be to him? Settle. Set- settlement. 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 So s- stop just stop with these lawyers. Um, it's been enough. It, it, it makes Pakistan look terrible in terms of, gosh, are we an attractive investment venue? The whole arbitration community and investors have followed this saga of almost a decade-long arbitration. Now things are being stalled in the enforcement phase. And if ever this seems like a good strategy for Pakistan. It's not. It is going to have an impact. It is going to have consequences. Um, something is going to happen either way. The investor, now that it has an award in its hand of this amount, is not ever going to walk away from the enforcement. So it's either going to be your, your assets are going to be found at some point and executed because I've, I've done that uh, uh, in a, a long time ago, you know, ships and planes and, and all that jazz. The lawyers will find yeah, it. Hotels may pop up in the Pakistani case. Exactly. So settle, settle, find a way, maybe through an honest broker to reach out to the legal team or to the investor directly, um, have confidential meetings, settle. That, that is my advice right now. Stop, stop this legal um, uh, cowboy uh, telenovela. And, and then in that settlement, think about non-monetary options. Think about that. Um, I don't know if there's any way if the investor would like to, to, to stay or if there is a sort of a leverage in a third country, but people can get creative. So I would focus on settlement and non-monetary options. Um, and the other thing I would do sort of the broader picture for, for Pakistan now that this, this has happened and really makes Pakistan look bad as a state respondent is um, this all started with the Supreme Court, right? And I think somewhere in the press, Pakistan has already said, you know, we want to attract foreign investors. We, we want to have a, a fruitful, attractive investment um, infrastructure. And uh, they said, we're going to look into this. We're, I've read that. We're going to look into this. We want to know how this happened in the first place. So apart from the settlement in this specific case, I would say, look at your judiciary, right? And what we've done a lot with an international organization, we've traveled the world with a group of experts and we've done what is called judicial dialogues. So we would go to the Supreme Court of a country. We've done that in India, for example. 
and um, work with the judges there, work, for example, with the chief justice of the Supreme Court, and have um, confidential, behind closed doors, meetings with as many members of the judiciary as possible, and talk about the role that the judiciary branch plays in this bigger international arena, and how they should be uh, interpreting treaties, how they should apply their laws, what their role is when it comes to foreign investors, etc. Because it looks like this was there was a bit of a denial of justice going on there. It happened in India too, um, and then the Indian courts um, through the Indian government were held accountable by an international tribunal. So apart from settling in this specific case, they need to look internally and find a way to have dialogues with the judiciary to make sure that this doesn't happen again. Yeah, I think the judicial reforms have been on the table for many years, if not decades in Pakistan, and that hasn't happened. And really, I've heard consistently as I've done this podcast from several people that judicial reforms are the key to success here, because without those, you're always going to have uh, a chill being cast over the investment environment and the climate, uh, primarily because Pakistan, like some Latin American countries, is highly instable politically. So governments come and go and there is corruption allegations and things like that. And so an activist judiciary that is keen to flex its muscles is keen to at times cancel deals when a government changes. And that in the long term is terrible for the country and its economy, particularly a country like Pakistan that needs foreign dollar inflows to grow its economy. Right. So it's a, it's it's one of those things that then from my perspective, looking at COVID, it's also a right time to do it because you're going to have countries compete for investments um, to grow mm-hmm. out of this crisis. Um, they will have to signal reforms and structural reforms, judicial reforms to attract people. And this will be a race among Pakistan and its peer economies, right? So the faster you do it, the better it is. And the more uh, you fight on arbitration cases like Recordic and others, the, the worse off you will be in the future because people won't invest um, and won't mm-hmm. come to your shores with, with that capital. Um, last question from you, given that you uh, also taught this subject, um, for someone who's seeking to learn a bit more about how this system works and uh, at a high level um, or case studies that they should look at, what, are, what would you recommend that they, where they start? Well, it all depends. If, if we're talking about the new generation and youngsters who want to enter the field of international arbitration, um, I would start with Young ICA. So that's Young and then ICA ICCA. You can just go to the website. This is a group that I actually launched exactly 10 years ago. So we're launching, we're celebrating the 10 year anniversary. Um, it now has almost 8,000 members. Congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. Well, it just made me feel a bit old though. But anyway, uh, we have almost 8,000 members and I'm, I'm no longer involved because we, we are now, obviously we've handed over to the, the new ones. But um, what we did at the time when I was still based in Europe is we, we realized that the arbitration group was very Eurocentric and American, whereas obviously arbitration is a, a dispute settlement system for the world, right? So where are all the others? So we, we set up this group for diversity, for, for regional diversity, and to, to open the doors um, of arbitration to everybody around the world, which, which really worked extremely well. So wherever you are, you can access this group, you can become a member, you can sign up for a mentoring program. Um, there are blogs, there are workshops, all the know-how possible is on that website. There's even announcement of 
uh, full scholarships for LLM programs around the world. So that's if you have this dream of entering the world of international arbitration. And then for those who um, already have fulfilled their professional dreams are happy where they are, but just want to learn is I would still go to the ICA website. So not the young baby ICA, but the adult ICA, if I may. So also it's, it's the international council for commercial arbitration where um, we have built some pages with easy, accessible know-how. So we made short guides for judges, um, short booklets, presentations on sort of the one-on-one on arbitration. Um, that's the best way to, to understand how the processes works. And I think one thing that is important, especially for judges, is we published one book that has been translated, I think, in over 20 languages, um, which is the Judge's Guide to the New York Convention, which is the most important treaty in, in this field. And I would very much hope um, one day we've done these roadshows everywhere in the world, but I don't think we've been to Pakistan. We, we tried to work on that, but as you know, it's not easy. It works. And when you talk about judicial reforms and that this has been on the schedule for such a, such a long time, um, we've been to many countries where one would think it is impossible. But one thing I've seen, if you bring in outside international foreign experts and other judges from other countries, you will be amazed um, what kind of progress you can make. So I would definitely uh, bear that in mind. Well, hopefully we can have a delegation in Pakistan soon to do some of these reforms and talk about these because I think it's, it's, it's sorely needed in the country. Um, and without an effective, effective judicial system, I think we'll continue to see this particular case in the Rico Dickinson's go on and others pop up, which actually would be a shame given Pakistan's need for foreign investment and the infrastructure and business needs it has uh, to stay relevant in a globalized economy. So thank you so much for joining us for this conversation. This is fascinating. And I hope you and your family are staying safe and sound and wish you all the best. We are. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in for this episode of Pakistanomy. Hope you enjoyed the discussion. If you like this podcast, please do subscribe to it using your favorite podcast app and do share it with your friends and family, as well as on your social media. Hope you tune in next time.